Not two. We are live. Here we go. Season two. Episode three. Episode three, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're kicking off. We're on our, our monthly schedule now. So, yeah. They, we're, just, uh, they just fly by. They do. And interestingly, episode three coincides with the number of people on the show this week. Oh, nice. <laughs> that was the smooth Canadian voice of our latest guest, our first ever guest, Mr. Schumacher. Hello, guys. I feel like, um, you know, there's that thing with like American drive time radio where there's like, uh, like first time, first time caller, long time listener. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's the, I'm the first time, long time guest. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's great to have you on. Quick question from me, just so we know a bit and uh, the listeners know a bit more about you. You have been listen to the scenario. You're stuck in the National Library for five days. You've got no access to the internet, no phone, no nothing. You're stuck there for five days, and you can only read books to pass the time. What books are you reading? Ooh, um, I would say Anderson textbook, 2015 edition. Sure, sure, sure. Um, what else? Kate, Kate Rayworth, Donut Economics. Uh, what else? Thomas Piketty, Capital. Wow. Okay. Cool. What else? Sort of economics flavor. Would you round that out to? I'm doing. I'm doing a thing with my partner at the moment where I'm asking her where she wants to live because we're both getting a little bit sort of grumpy with the London winter. And she says, the way I ask it is always like, if you could invite anyone alive or dead to a dinner party, who would it be? I feel like this is one of those types of questions and I'm not, I'm not sticking the landing necessarily. <laughs> I'll ask a more simple question, Brad. What's, um, what's your favorite theme of the fourth A-level themes to teach? Oh, love it. Um, I reckon to teach is theme, theme one or theme three but actually to like enjoy it, I'd go two or four. I, I think I'm sort of macro for life, but I do like teaching a bit of micro. Do like uh, after my own heart, yeah. Interesting, I'm a, um, I'm a micro man. What, teaching and in terms of- Teaching, reading, doing, yeah. I'm pro, pro micro, I like the, the logicness of it, yeah. Just maximizing social welfare. That's me, that's what I do, yeah. You can, um, you can kick us off then, Joe, because the way, way this works is we've got, well, four themes to get through with news items. Theme one, micro, two, macro, three is the second year of A-level, but micro, and then four on macro again. So we may as well kick off in, in numerical order with some year 12 microeconomics. Um, have you got anything for us this week? I have, and we were talking about the use of statistics and the manipulation of statistics by, um, or the poor use of statistics, or yeah, by politicians, etc. And I saw recently in the news there was a, a piece about economic growth in the UK, and they were saying how growth's been very good, but in actual fact, that doesn't mean the situation and the economy itself is very good. So I was wondering what you thought about the use of growth figures, the use of index numbers, base years, as a, uh, how it's up for manipulation. Yeah, I've, um, it's one of my bugbears. It comes up, it does come up in theme one. And actually, 
a couple of weeks ago, there was a BBC headline saying, you know, UK economy rebounds with fastest growth since World War II, which, you know, technically is correct. But that is a bit of a, a grabbing headline because it's that the growth is the change year on year, obviously. But if we're coming, if there are, there are fluctuations in growth, as there are with the business cycle, then it means if you're coming from a particularly low point, then that growth doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, the economy is at an all time high or doing the best it's possibly done since World War II. We're just talking about rates of change. Um, and given, given the context of COVID, I suppose there's really the potential there for, for those numbers or that growth to actually not be telling the full story. Yeah, so think of like Jimmy's pocket, Jimmy's pocket money has gone up by 150%. And I think, oh, wow, Jimmy's doing well. But anyway, it's gone up from £1 to £2.50. Whereas, <clears throat> so it doesn't actually give you a good idea of the grander picture. You need a bit more context rather than just a year-on-year -year growth. Yeah. And the, the reality is that the UK economy is, the GDP is still lower than it was pre-COVID. So... Yes, the economy is growing and we want it to recover, but there needs to be a kind of, I don't know, I, I wouldn't want the headlines to, to, to miss out on the, that full context. It's a bit like that student who tells you that they did like two more hours of revision than they did last week. There's a lot riding on what they did last week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly, it reminds me actually, because one of my things, one of my passions is, is an interest in climate change and climate change data often is, is, you know, has to be presented in a way that tries to tell a full picture, but it also has to be accessible. So people like a headline number or they like to see a trend line or something that, that tells them a story that's easy to understand. And I think sometimes that means it's open to manipulation. So you'll see, sometimes you'll see graphs saying that, you know, the world's climate hasn't really changed much since 1998, but 1998 was a really, really uncharacteristically hot year. So if you're using that as your base year, sure, it'll look like that. But that's because you've chosen a bad base year uh, from which to compare things against. So I had an interesting point. This is uh, from a listener, actually, Sadie in Newcross. And she was saying the proposed the idea is all data biased. Think about temperature. It's like, oh, that's what it is, what it is. Well, it depends where you put in your thermometer. And then the idea that all data has some level of subjectivity to it. Do you agree? Yeah, but it's your job to try and remove that as much as possible, isn't it? You're trying to paint as full a picture as you can. So you think it does, all data does have some subjectiveness to it? Well, I think we as individuals have some subjectiveness in kind of how we present it because every bit of data has got a full story and it's impossible to tell a full story with numbers because, you know, depending on what it is, there's always going to be some wild explanation. It's hard to, you know, model everything or come up with a model that explains everything. So therefore, unless you're capturing that context, which you can't, there's naturally going to be some bias in there. That's my view. Anyway, should we, um, should we move on to a bit of macro? Theme two. 
which tends to focus on kind of individual economies, less focused on economies within a kind of global setting. Um, so yeah, some macro news that we've had in the last month or so. Um, what are we picking out, Brad? We are talking today about inflation. So inflation is kind of hitting, I mean, is it, it's record highs in our lifetime, I think. Is that right? I think so, yeah. In my lifetime. Yeah. I mean... Depends how old you are. Depends what, you know. I know, I was just walking back through the... It's, it's definitely the highest it's ever been in Joe's life. Okay. Um, so my thing is, um, I had this thing, uh, it sort of occurred to me on a cycle to school one day, and it's the hobby horse I've been kind of riding, uh, riding around on recently. And so my question, I don't necessarily think I'm right, but my question is, um, we spend a, a significant chunk of theme one telling students about the market mechanism and that if um, prices go up, that's a signal to firms to increase production and the any excess demand will be sort of rationed away because um, uh, firms increase production, prices go up, uh, extension of supply, contraction of demand and, and their return to the market equilibrium. And that's, that's a, a tidy story that we tell in theme one. And then in theme two and theme four, we talk about um, inflation and keeping an, uh, inflation under control and low and stable inflation. And my question is, how come that's different to the market mechanism doing its thing? So in other words, if, if we take inflation to be the kind of the general price level, that as prices goes up, some people will leave the market, right? There'll be some kind of contraction of demand. And so why do we need central banks intervening to keep those low stable, uh, to keep hitting that sort of 2% target when really the, the Adam Smith store version of the story tells us that, you know, some people will, will drop out of the market and that'll reduce prices and, and the invisible hand will lead us to the blah, blah, blah. Uh, so really my question is just, is it just menu costs and shoe leather costs that we're trying to avoid? I mean, it's, an, uh, it's, a, it's a nice thought and it's a good question. Um, I mean, when we talk about things like cost push inflation, that's easy, like what we've got now in the UK, that's easy to explain with supply and demand, isn't it? So why is energy prices going up? And then what does the impact of high energy prices, well, that increases supply, raw material costs, et cetera. Um, so, that, so you can explain it with that, I suppose. Hmm. Um, the question is the question you're saying wh why control it why keep it at two why try and keep it at two percent maybe that's the question like why why do we have to go through this process so so the story of demand of like demand side inflation is we're all we're all in employment we're all spending and that's the nice version of inflation i i get that the supply side of the story is is the not nice version of inflation but even that is still increasing prices people leave the market or, or buy less or whatever, why shouldn't that kind of resolve itself using the kind of the market forces? A lot of it's going to come down to, you know, you're your kind of the school of thought that you're, you're using. Um, you know, this, this idea that it'll all wash out and it's all, you know, it sounds, you know, it's, it, it's, it's actually the market doing its thing is quite a kind of classical economics approach to it. You could, someone could say, well, if high levels of inflation or unstable levels of inflation, actually, if that's going to start denting 
consumer confidence, going to start denting business confidence, then that could start to impact on the long-term growth of the economy and the long-term standard of living in the economy. So as a result of inflation, you're starting to impact on standards of living. But that's taking a slightly more Keynesian approach um, with focus on, you know, levels of investment and animal spirits and the idea that you can have long-term unemployment. Whereas I think what you're getting at is in terms of saying, well, isn't, isn't, it, isn't the market discovering this and finding equilibrium and it all washing out and, you know, and, and that being what we want to happen? Um, that's a more kind of, kind of classical viewpoint. Mm. So, the- so one of the ways of solving inflation is, oh, sorry, is contractionary policies and so you're arguing that contractionary policies and the issues that they cause aren't worth, don't outweigh menu costs and shoe leather costs. Yeah, I think that's what I'm saying. Should we tell the um, listeners what menu costs and shoe leather costs are? Yeah, so menu costs, so I have this, when you constantly having to change the prices of your, of your goods, you have to get new menus, you have to change it on your website, you have to change, get a new billboard, and all those are going to add up to costs for your for your business. And uh, shoe leather costs are the idea that prices are rising all over the place, and you're walking around trying to find the best, trying to search for the the best price. And the process of searching and finding this is that you wear wear your shoes out, and therefore you've got to buy new shoes. Um, <laughs> reality is, shoe leather costs aren't necessarily buying new shoe buying new leather shoes, but it's the cost of searching. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I also think there's the, you know, the, the price of kind of peas or carrots jumping up in price doesn't affect certain areas of society very much. Whereas the idea of inflation as a whole, particularly if you look at, you know, the impact to, to savers, people, the value of people's savings, then the impacts of it are, are being felt over, you know, in a broader sense. So, uh, and it, you know, people might have made different decisions in the past or in the future if they'd known what the inflation rate was going to be. So I think having kind of low and stable inflation is, is a good target to have for, for governments, not just for the stability of the economy, but actually, you know, for the fairness of the economy over the long term as well. Well, this, this actually links nicely with your theme one point about like our statistics, you know, can this be seen as objective? Because one of the things that... Um, One of my other things about inflation is, you know, there's always, whenever they change the items in the basket, right? So there's always a big sort of, um, uh, a big, everyone gets sniffy about avocados being in the basket and something being taken out. And so we go through all these things and use the example of peas and carrots. So peas and carrots get uh, expensive and then everyone sort of freaks out. Whereas we don't really sort of kind of notice the fact that I mean, sort of in our lifetimes, but certainly since 2008, young people have been effectively priced out of the housing market. So we, we, we've been living with hyperinflation in, in certain areas for a long time. Um, but just the metric that we use doesn't, it only shows up when certain things sort of get more expensive. Yeah. And that's been in the news a bit recently in the UK. I think there's been a bit of a spotlight shone on kind of the limitations of inflation as a measure and what it doesn't take into account and perhaps how we should have different measures based on, you know, incomes of households and actually how much has the cost of living raised, you know, gone up for, for low income households. And I agree with that, that that would give more context, would be a better, a better use of data. 
yeah, the, the basic options that you get in most supermarkets, the own brand stuff, they've actually gone up by 80%, whereas the 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 top end stuff, the branded stuff hasn't. So actually the bigger picture looks like it's not inflation not that bad. But if you're only buying the cheap stuff, actually it's gone and it's quite severe inflation because that has gone up in price. Yeah. So yeah, it does RPI does mask or CPI, sorry, does mask a lot, doesn't it? Right, should we, um, yeah, uh, as well as having our, our kind of, I mean, we could, we could go around in circles on, on the kind of whether inflation's good, bad, whether, you know, philosophically what we, what we make of it, um, but we would probably um, run out of time. So <laughs> let's, um, let's move on. Um, we'd also lose some listeners, which would, be, which would be a nightmare. So let's move on to theme three, shall we? Um, I selected the theme three topic this week which was on, uh, this is at the request of um, Chris in Queen's Park, which was to do with Centrica and energy companies. And there's been some news items I've seen lately, some headlines saying that Centrica, who are kind of British gas, they're a, a, a gas and electricity provider to people's homes, that they've doubled their profits. And that actually a lot of other companies in the market they're in, particularly the big energy companies, the big six, they've made uh, one billion pounds of profit this year. This is um, despite the fact at the time in this market, there's um, a real a real kind of era of turmoil because prices have been all over the place. Natural gas prices have been jumping up and down at unprecedented rates. And as a result, um, energy prices are going to go up in the homes for a lot of people. And uh, a lot of small energy companies have been going out of business. So I guess my question to you guys is how can we have a circumstance where some businesses are making really substantial profits at the same time as other companies are going out of business? Well, when you say big businesses are doing well, small business struggling, my head immediately turns to economies of scale and the idea that increased output, you can reduce your average costs, um, that immediately comes to mind. Although, how does that work? What type of economies of scale do you think you're going to be getting in the in the energy market? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's pretty large economies of scale to be had in kind of technical terms, the technical economies of scale as a result of, of just... Um, you know, how substantial their infrastructure is and the scale of, of the movement of product that needs to be done is, is pretty, pretty large. So I think that's, that's an obvious one, as well as the financial economies scale, because they are enormous businesses with massive, massive balance sheets um, and probably some managerial as well. So I think there is. Yeah. Um, so that's, that seems legitimate. Any other reasons why large companies would be making supernormal profits while smaller companies going out of business? What would they have? They would have, um, what are the other ways that you can sort of, that that business growth kind of fortifies you against kind of the, the market swings? Uh, savings, some kind of like version of a rainy day fund. Um, they have that. Some of the, you know, they've, these big, the big six energy companies, they tend to be, you know, spread out globally, some of them. Um, but certainly across Europe. So, you know, they've almost got, um, through being larger, they can, they can cross-subsidize a little bit, um, which means they probably are more 
uh, robust, I suppose, uh, to, to big price swings. The other thing they've probably got that means they're more robust to price swings is that they're vertically integrated. So they are responsible for both the extraction of natural gas from under the sea, also with, uh, and then also into the retail market of actually selling it into homes. So the way natural gas tends to go, some companies will extract it from under the sea, then it gets traded in a kind of a wholesale market. And then some companies separately seem to be responsible for selling it into people's homes. So the companies that operate in all those areas of extraction, wholesale market and retail market, I guess they're a little bit more well defended to price changes. So which bits of that chain are therefore going to be impacted the most by these high prices? Well, the strange thing at the moment is that there's a price cap on um, in the retail market. So you can't set, you can't exceed a certain price cap of selling into people's homes. Now for smaller companies who have had to buy from the wholesale market, because that's been at record prices, it means they've been having to buy something at a high price and sell it into people's homes at a low price. So they've been forced almost into making a loss. And that's why a lot of small companies who are doing this on a really short-term basis have gone out of business. And the bigger companies that do these things over a longer time frame and have got a lot of their own resources and have got deeper pockets and can cross subsidize from other areas of their business, they're able to withstand that storm a little better. Um, so not only you know, are they able to make more profit during this time, they're also better able to weather the storm. So is this, is this kind of a bit of a theme one story as well, max prices? So good for those who can get it, bad for the, the overall market, something like yeah. that? Yeah, and it, you know, it raises a really kind of interesting question of, well, you know, is that good legislation? Is there government failure there? You know, what information has the government used to, to, to make that decision? Maybe it's an information failure. Um, you know, are they benefiting consumers by keeping prices low? Or, or is there a welfare loss associated with it? You know, it's, um, yeah, there's a, there's a whole lot from the A-level course you could chuck in there. It's a massive melting pot. I guess the other thing I'd talk about is, is maybe contestability, the idea that some businesses are losing, uh, losing profits and going out of business whilst others are making profits. You know, if there are the big six making record profits, shouldn't some other companies enter that market, I suppose, is, is the question. I mean, if it was nice and contestable, then you'd have this incentive, this incentive of this big profit being made and then firms outside the market would think, oh, I want to do that. I'm going to join and I'm going to compete away some of that profit. But what it looks like, what it sounds like is that it isn't contestable and therefore firms aren't competing. And therefore those incumbent firms are just sat there enjoying these large supernormal profits. So we can't go and buy a kind of, you know, natural gas extraction rig from the North Sea tomorrow. Is that what you're telling me, Joe? I mean, never say never, but I'm not sure how easy i think the uh, the high fixed cost the higher uh, high fixed cost could be a barrier for us i'm a slightly different point but there's a there's a see that article about nuclear fusion happening i wonder how they've managed to do it for 30 seconds which is actually a big breakthrough and the idea of nuclear energy as a alternative i was trying to think what impact would the growth of nuclear have on the gas prices You'd assume it would drive them down. 
Um, good. Yeah. Substitutes. Yeah, it's potential substitute, particularly substitute in kind of base load energy. So they're, they're substitutes in, you know, the style of energy they provide as well. So pretty direct substitutes, I'd say. Strong XED on that one. Yeah, that's it. Right, should we, um, yeah, so, I mean, overall, I'd say, um, yeah, it seems like that, the reason why companies are, are able to, to make large profits there, probably to do with, with all those things we mentioned of cross-subsidization, um, economies of scale, contestability. Um, so yeah, that answers that question, I suppose. Let's, um, so let's move things on to some more macro. Um, Joe, have you got anything on macro theme yeah. before? <laughs> so recently I've signed, up to, I've, I've signed up to Oddbox. Have you heard of Oddbox? No. Where fruit and veg that's too big, too small, or it's in surplus in supermarkets, this company then put it in a cardboard box and send it to your door. And the idea is you're supposed to help that environment and you get lots of veg for quite a low price. So I thought that sounds great. I'll sign up, but I accidentally did it too frequently. So I've now got a box every week. I get a box of full box of veg every week. So I'm stood there with about two kilos of potatoes, three kilos of onions, and I don't quite know what to do with that. I'm making lots and lots and lots of stockpiling. Yeah, I'm stockpiling. And <laughs> <laughs> and it's quite overwhelming, almost intimidating the amount of veg I'm having to get through. <laughs> um, you'll be you'll be helping to keep the price of vegetables nice and high though. Well, this leads us on to the latest article that I saw about buffer stocks. And I was thinking, and how buffer stocks in India, and I was thinking I could basically do a buffer stock for Queen's Park market as well. So we need, hang on, we need to, I need, you're gonna have to refresh my memory of what buffer stocks are. This is Brad's, this is Brad's basket. Okay, so uh, a buffer stock is, um, now I think it comes in lots of different shapes and sizes, but essentially it is, we Not want- my veg. Oh, nice. <laughs> There's no off switch. Um, <laughs> excellent. Um, so buffer stocks is you want to keep the price uh, in a, not exactly a fixed price, but you want to keep it within a range of prices. And this would be to, uh, I mean, I suppose we can get on to who this kind of, um, which economic agents we're kind of trying to satisfy here. But uh, in order to do that, uh, somebody, usually the government, has to keep some kind of reserve of some commodity uh, so that during, uh, uh, after let's say a drought or something like that, they can then sort of add supply to the market, something like that. Um, and that would push prices down. So that's push prices down by increasing supply. Uh, and that I think is what the article is about. Now, what I'm kind of also curious about is the flip side of that. Is there also then like, do you kind of replenish the stock in the good years? So after a kind of after a, a kind of windfall, do you then? build up the stock for then the next drought, famine, whatever. Yeah, I think that's, it's, it's, it's intended to kind of give some price stability, isn't it? And it typically applies to, well, to markets that are, that have got some kind of essential product value to them. So necessities, so things like agriculture really, you know, tend, tend to be where they're seen. And India do a lot of it with um, their agricultural products. And they've actually, more recently, they, they have had instances of both 
Um, somewhere prices have been high and they've been selling goods into markets, but also they've had instances where prices have been getting very low and they guarantee a certain price um, to, to farmers and they guarantee to then buy it up. And what does this do to incentives? Good question. Go on then, Joe. <laughs> um, well, I was going to initially talk about issues of buffer stocks and agricultural goods that are um, perishable, because I've seen that from personal experience. But um, incentives, well, it impl- like if you're a farmer and you know that you're going to get a certain price, you might not then um, be as efficient as you possibly could or the idea that <clears throat> lots of this product's been used up, but lots of products been produced and then it's not on the market doesn't seem like an efficient use of resources. Um, so yeah, there's a it plays because you're intervening in the in the market forces, you're therefore going to be intervening into in the incentives of both consumers and producers. How does, I mean, I've always, I, I, I do like a buffer stock and, and I think I said earlier, I do love a diagram in economics. So I, I do like the buffer stock diagram. Um, I've never really fully kind of settled on how it's actually sort of implemented. Like, does the government have sort of massive, like I picture in my head, like almost like silos full of various commodities kind of ready to deploy when there's kind of volatile market fluctuations, but Surely that can't be right. I mean, I don't know the logistics of buffer stocks, but I think yes, it is. It is. Yeah, yeah. So, is I it mean, like that sounds. So I remember hearing is. about one in in the cocoa moving away from India, but I remember hearing about one in cocoa market, and um, the two major producers of of cocoa um, are, in, are in the Ivory Coast, like geographically, the Ivory Coast and Ghana, and they spent. billion building warehouses to run a buffer stock scheme, Um, which in itself, I suppose, that the cost of producing that, especially in developing countries, you could say, you know, is that the most suitable use of of their resources to, you know, spend that level of revenue building a warehouse when there's so many pressing needs with regards to, you know, their developing economies? Yeah, the the opportunity cost of the buffer scheme was what the benefits are what your farmers are going to be happy any other benefits other than stable prices for your farmers sounds like a good gig for farming well i guess it keeps prices low at a time when you know they could have been you know if, if they were otherwise going to be going past a ceiling a price ceiling then it does help keep prices low and that's in consumers interests but then conversely if it's keeping prices high then that's kind of works against consumers' interests. Yeah, maybe a, just a, a price cap. And the thing is, so I'm just looking at some stats here. India, who, who are kind of, you know, one of the biggest users of buffer stocks, they've got a global hunger index of, there are uh, 111 out of 116, which I, I need to read exactly what that means, but it's, it's delivered as a kind of a particularly poor ranking um, that index so sorry for my my poor contextual use of data again but it seems interesting that you know despite this they there's still high levels of of kind of food poverty yeah so the idea is food poverty people are starving yet the government are artificially maintaining high prices doesn't really 
Well, and the government are also storing 100 million tonnes of grain <laughs> in, a, in a warehouse somewhere. It feels, you know, it feels like a poor use of resources. The economist in me is, is seething. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm, the, the PSF is called the Price uh, Stabilisation Fund. Um, mm. The other thing I'd maybe present is that it's, if, if you are sustaining these industries where there's a really low level of productivity by workers, um, then that is preventing development. And I, I think this, you know, is, is what the Lewis model, which is in, you know, included in the A-level is all about, which is, you know, do we want, and I, I think about half of Indian workers work in, in farming, but farming only accounts for 6% of their GDP. So, you know, what the Lewis model will say is that those workers need to work to go, move to areas where there's a higher marginal revenue product, and that will help push growth and development within the country. So maybe our buffer stocks, you know, helping keep people working in these industries, they say they're protecting them, but actually it's working against the longer term interests of the economy. Yeah, Lewis would be fuming, wouldn't he? He'd be fuming as well. Um, yeah, so it's it's a tricky one you know i can see you can see like the, the good intentions of a buffer stock scheme but there's huge kind of costs associated with it. there's huge inefficiencies associated with it i'm a little bit it do the, what the market does i feel like i've sort of i'm normally such a kind of died in the world lefty but i feel like i've come through this podcast like on the other side just <laughs> adam smith to the core let the market decide I don't know. I still think I, still, I, I feel like the, the, you know, the problem is that the farmers require some kind of stability in, in their income. That also provides them with you know, stability in terms of their prices and their demand is, is a good platform for them to raise levels of investment as well. So I can see the need for, for development, but at the same time, you can see the need for low prices for consumers and for hopefully low cost um, forms of government intervention so i don't know if buffer stocks kind of tick all three of those boxes but maybe it's a circumstance where you know you can't pick all three of those boxes or there isn't legislation that does it I'm trying to think that yeah I'm trying to have an alternative there can only be like a subsidy or um but again there's obviously costs to the for the government of that isn't there so yeah so um well like what if there was no buffer stock scheme at all what would happen the farmers would go out of business and therefore there'd be no food at well, they, they in India, they, they tried to remove, uh, kind of peel them back a little bit. And there were, you know, riots for, for days. Um, so even just in terms of making that change in the first place would be very, very difficult. And maybe you, you could make the argue that, you know, does that show that they're dependent on these things? But I suppose they're dependent on them for, yeah, like you say, a stable income. Peeling the onion stalks back. <laughs> So many layers. That's why he's on. So many that's, layers why <laughs> that's why we got him on. Things gems like that, Brad. It's um, it's been a pleasure. Um, hopefully, I'm not sure how long our um our guest list is, but hopefully we can get you on again sometime soon. The cycle through, yeah. Get me on the uh, on the next iteration. Um, yeah. boys, that was a treat. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brad. Um, yeah, I look forward to the next one when we have you on. It'd be great. <laughs>